The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop vacating your corpus delecti and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 478 with guest John Peterson, recorded live Monday, August 17, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now, offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who'd rather be standing on the umbrella, Ella, Ella, A, 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 Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard here for you. Richard, what's up? I'm home. You're home. We're, we're home. home. It's good. We were away, and now we're home. And have you noticed the code camp thing is really taking off these days? We're getting a lot of invitations to go and speak at different code camps. We just got back from uh, from DevLink in Nashville. Well, it's more than the code camps are taking off because they've always been popular. But the and, and now they're not even called code camps anymore. Just regional conferences that have sprung up by people who are user group leaders or speakers, local people, that are attracting big-name talent with a low price tag. Yeah, and it's an inexpensive show. They're pretty much run by volunteers. Uh, they have a little bit of vendor support, and, and uh, you know, it's $100 or $200 to go. And, and that show, when the one we just got back from Nashville... DevLink, yeah. ...was, it had that buzz, Yep. You know, it was about 600 people, and they were really excited to be there, and everybody's talking to everybody, and I just, I love that in a conference. It's very cool. Uh, what is happening around here? Not really much. We were going to do a recording earlier today, but just as we were about to get on the phone, they started jackhammering in the bathroom across the hall. That's so, bad. Yeah. You can have all the soundproofing you want in the studio, but when there's jackhammer vibrations running through the floor, it's kind of... Kind of hard to... Kind of hard to avoid that. Kind of hard. Hey, let, let me do a Better Know Framework. We'll get this show on the road. All right. Off the ground. Up in the air. Your your favorite prepositional phrase inserted here. Uh, today, I thought I would go over to a class that's in Silverlight, but not in WPF. Oh. System.windows.analytics. Interesting. Which exposes read-only data about how an application is performing. And it's a class. It's not a namespace. So what does a class do? So so it's read-only stuff. So you've got um, you've got a average process load event uh, property rather. Okay. Which gets uh, how much of the CPU this process is using across all cores averaged together. You get the average processor load, which gets how much CPU processing is being used across all cores averaged together. So it's interesting. Average process load and average processor load, one is for the process, one is for the processor, how much CPU the processor is taking up. You have the GPU collection, which gets a collection of GPU information objects, which each include details taken from a video driver, useful for multi-adapter cases. 
So isn't this cool? You got these little this little thing built right into Silverlight that you can run in a browser. Yeah, I, I thought about add. that. That sounded a lot like Ajax View until you start talking about Perfmon uh, counters like that, which Ajax View can't get. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. That is uh, neat. Yep. There it is. System.windows.analytics. Very nice. You got an email for us? I do indeed. And it is about Brad Cunningham's show on touch technology. That was fun. It says, hey guys, I would just like to drop you a note as I just listened to your show on touch technology. Brad mentions that you need some sort of special hardware to try out the touch-enabled development, but you don't. Take a look at multitouchvista.codeplex.com. This is a framework that not only enables you to do multi-touch dev applications for .NET 3.5, but it also contains a software driver and multi-mouse input provider that you can use with Windows 7 Touch. Just connect more moused devices, or, you know, multiple mice, and with a little configuration, you can have two or more, if you have enough arms, touch points to do your pinch, rotation, and whatever you like. It is really straightforward, and you can get playing with multi-touch enabled UI in a few minutes. Yeah. That's pretty cool. It is cool. And uh, I think the big thing that we were talking about with Brad was that to do touch programming and really test it properly, you got to have a touch monitor, which is nothing hugely exotic, but you do need that. And most of what touch comes down to is just making your buttons big enough and your yeah. controls big enough so that they can, so you can easily, you know, touch them. Don't make little little buttons put in the same place together. Yeah. Little buttons are bad. Little buttons bad. And he goes on to say. You know that technology developed by Perceptive Pixel is possibly reproduced on your own? There are many people around the world that are building surface-like tables with a little bit of effort. Take a look at NuiGroup.com. So that's N-U-I-Group.com and their forums. There's lots of software available out there for doing sound mixing. Wow, sound mixing. That's exactly what I was into. There you go. At so it looks like there's some folks out there doing it. Great show, guys. And greetings from Poland. Camille Zadora. And thank you, Camille, for your fine email. A mug is on its way to you in Poland. Indeed. Hey, we're going to be there. We're going to Poland. We yeah. are. That's uh, October or November? It's in October. October. Uh, so I think the 12th and 13th and 14th, we're in Bulgaria for DevReach. And then the following week, we're going to be in SDC. But in between, in the weekend in between, we're going to go to, I believe it's Krakow. We're still laying down some of the details on that. But it's a Code Camp-like show. And it's going to be four or five of us that will get there. But it'll be a lot of fun. Yes, yes, yes. And hey, you know, uh, Infusion, they're hiring like crazy. Are they really? You'd be crazy not to send me an email if you're even thinking about changing jobs or getting a new job. If you're a hardcore .NET geek, you're into SharePoint and... WPF and uh, Silverlight and uh, Touch Computing. They're doing surface development. They have offices in London, Toronto, New York City, and Dubai. So if you're interested in that, and they're friends of ours, and that's why I mention it, send us an email, carl at franklins.net. And now it's time for the show. Excellent. John V. Peterson. He's been a developer for about 20 years. He was in a D-Base and Fox Pro and then got into .NET. He's been in SQL Server since version 6. Oracle, he's been an Oracle guy. Uh, he was a, was a Microsoft developer MVP, speaks at user groups and conferences like TechEd and Dev Days. Uh, in 1999, he wrote uh, the definitive white paper on ADO for Visual Fox Pro developers. In 2002, he wrote the Absolute Beginner's Guide to Databases for Q Publishing. He was an instructor for both App Dev and MEI, co-author of Visual Fox Pro Enterprise Development from Prima Publishing with Rod Paddock, Ron Talmadge, and Eric Ranft. He was also co-author of Visual Basic Web Development from Prima Publishing with Rod Paddock and Richard Campbell. Hey, I know that guy. Yes. So uh, he has a lot to say. John, how are you? Doing great. Uh, had a great time at DevLink with you guys. It was uh, one of the best conferences I've uh, been to in a long time. It was pretty amazing, wasn't it? Absolutely. And and you know, just the the closing was a lot of fun for us. We did a uh, we did a closing panel on the question: Has software development got too complex? And we had more audience participation than we've ever ever had at a live .NET Rocks. Isn't that right, Richard? Yeah. Well, the whole last half of the show, and this this show was published last week, but the whole last half of the show was just. Question after question after question for the panel. It was amazing. It was pretty cool. Well, we're not here to talk about Visual Fox Pro or DBase or Oracle or any of those things that you have expertise in. We're here to talk about law. Yeah, 
John, you got to tell a story because something went terribly wrong in your life, didn't it? Uh, yeah, several times. Uh, it was, uh, <laughs> let's see, going back to about 1999, uh, I had a lifelong dream of, you know, being a lawyer. And at that time I was, uh, I was about 34 years old and I'm like, well, you know, I'm not getting any younger. So around, I guess around 2000, uh, my wife and I are having lunch, and I said, you know what? I, I really I got to do this. I, I, I really want to do this. And and I'm fortunate that in my area, I've got a couple, there's a couple schools that have part-time programs. So I went to Rutgers, and uh, 2000 started, graduated in 2004 with sights of being a intellectual property lawyer at a uh, big firm and uh Thought that my background in software development would be a good fit. It was all going well. I passed the, I passed the bar, got the good news on my 40th birthday. Nice. And then reality set in. Oh. And One day you wake up and you're a lawyer. I woke up and, and you know, by 2004, the, the legal market had already started to soften up. That there was that there was already a bit of retrenchment. There were, the, the budgets were already starting to be cut back a bit, you know, a little bit in in uh, with the, with the large law firms. And you know, I was a non traditional student. You know, I was working, and I had a family. And the other thing that I found out was that law firms, especially the big ones, and if you're going to practice IP law, you've got to do it in one of the bigger firms. They love to own their associates, and I wasn't somebody just starting out again. Yeah. But I did, I did manage to hook into a, a, a medium-sized firm, and I actually got to practice uh, transactional law, mergers and acquisitions, and intellectual property certainly uh, was, was a part of that. And, and I did that for, for a few years. But there is the idea of practicing law, and then there is actually actually practicing law and interacting with other attorneys. And I realized that my first love was software development. And I am back doing that full time. And that's what I'm doing. So uh, when you were saying you were having lunch with your wife and you said, honey, I want to be a lawyer, I was waiting for you to say. And then she said, what are you crazy? What are you, <laughs> yeah, what are you she, talking about? You have respect of your peers now. They're going to laugh at you. Yes, uh, interestingly, in interestingly enough, she was very supportive. But then, <laughs> once I started, all of a sudden, other people that she dealt with, and she works in the banking business, and she deals with a lot of lawyers, and also with folks that had practice law. And it's interestingly, the, the the people out there that actually have law degrees, and you never, you would never even realize it, huh. they don't practice law, and they all said, "Oh." If he can stop, don't don't let him do it. But wow. <laughs> once I start, but once I start something, I was committed to seeing it through. So that's what I did. That's a very strange story. I mean, I I can I've heard of people coming out of law and getting into other things, but somebody who felt drawn to the profession. What actually drew you? What what was the call that made you made you want to do that? Well, un, you know, underlying everything, whether it's business and. And really, how we a lot of how we operate uh, as a country and as a society to some degree uh, has a lot, of, obviously, a lot of relationship with the law. And I started reading a lot of Lawrence Lessig's work. He was at Harvard at the time. Now he's at Stanford. And just the intersection of technology and law for me was really was really interesting. And I just thought it was a it was a direction that I could go in. I also felt, hey, that's something that can't be outsourced. <laughs> right. And and the other thing is, I had some kids. I had you know kids at the time that were getting at the age where you know you guys know you know as, as a consultant, you're a road warrior and you're going to where the work is. And I right. thought that doing that, I would be more at home, and I was. Uh, but um, but here I am. So. Back to, back to being a full-time developer. Well, that's obviously given you quite uh, quite the perspective, I suppose. Um, now that you've been through all that, you uh, you know, a lot of things have been happening in IP law lately. Uh, just recently, this thing with uh, 
what is it, I4I in, yes. in uh, Canada, who claims to have some patent on loading documents as XML? Yeah, we, I was actually, uh, before Nashville, I was actually uh, down in Austin spending some time with my good friend Rod Paddock. And uh, we were uh, we were driving around, and uh, as we do as, as geeks, we always have our iPhone or some device with us where we're reading something, and this thing popped up about uh, a, a district judge has uh, has uh, issued an order that uh, enjoins Microsoft from selling Word, and that they have sixty days to do so. And uh, reading about that, it's a pretty hyper technical case. It's interesting, if you look at a lot of patents that are out there, there's over 300 patents that deal with XML in one form or another. I've long thought that the courts and, and the, in the, US, uh, the, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office has been a bit too uh, liberal at times in terms of the amount of patents that are awarded. And looking at this case, it's, you know, there's some very interesting facts there. They certainly, the I4I uh, company, which I believe that's the name of it, has successfully made the arguments to get the uh, uh, injunction uh, issued, but now Microsoft has already appealed. And I guess these two companies have dealt, uh, Microsoft had dealt with this company before. So obviously they were exposed to the specific technology. What's it going to mean? I, I don't know, but... It's uh, it's going to be very very interesting to see where where it all goes. Well, what's interesting about the patent? Have you looked into it? Do you, is it is it? Do they have a, a case to stand on? Well, you know, the it, it deals with tra- it deals with transforming uh, data and custom tags and the very specifics. This is the, this is the problem with these cases is sometimes what the specific thing it does. Um, may not be perceptible to you or me or anybody else working with a product. It may be a very, very narrow piece of functionality that's consumed as part of a bigger uh, application. Yeah. And interestingly, the, the judge's order does say that as long as, as, long as Word opens, you know, opens a document up as plain text or is, is not engaging in the very specific functionality that, that apparently is covered by this patent, they're fine. So it's the kind of thing where, okay, could Microsoft issue a patch and then they are now no longer infringing the patent? That's The judge certainly has left the door open for that. But but they're also going to cripple their product, are they not, if that happens? It really depends on how widespread that functionality is. And, yeah. and, and I do not know that. Uh, I just look at this as yet another case of where you may have very, very specific piece of functionality it causes an entire product to be sort of thrown in limbo, uh, and it's going to be up to the courts to decide. And to a large degree, the courts and the USPTO have created this problem uh, because yeah. of all these patents. But the deal is, is that until somebody enforces their pat their patent or their copyright or their trademark, courts won't intervene. So right, of course not. It'll be interesting to watch. There's. Uh, lots of blog articles written about it. And from an innovation standpoint, it's good for folks to kind of see where, where this goes. Um, not sure it's something that really affects developers on a day-to-day basis, but it's still it's interesting to see how Microsoft defends it and where it goes. Well, what's interesting is just the whole notion that you can, you know, write your applications and your software and innovate and all that kind of stuff. And you will, if you become successful and really successful, meaning you're making millions of dollars off your software, that's when you got to worry about it. I mean, because that's when people look around and they say, ah, these guys made a lot of money off of my idea or, you know, part of what they're using is, is my, my patent. And that's when, that's when it gets dangerous. So is the, the question is that if you're writing software and you're innovating and you're just a one-man shop, should you spend the extra time and money to to patent any, to, to see what can be patented? Are there, I'm Richard, you know about this. Are there people out there who will just sit down with you and you describe what your application does and then they search through all the patents to see if there's anything unique? Well, that's, that's precisely what, you know, a patent, a patent attorney, go seek somebody out and certainly to get some initial advice, 
it's probably a very nominal charge, if no charge at all, just to sit with somebody. Uh, there's a lot of good books out there. Um, believe it or not, as a lawyer, I I would say that the stuff like Legal Zoom and things like that, they're great self-help things out there that folks can look at and at least get an understanding of what's of what's required, you know, for, for somebody to be patentable. Uh, if you go down that road, it's really expensive. Right. Um, and for most software developers, for what they do, chances are good. They're building on prior art anyway. So the chances that your, your average developer is going to come up with something that's really patentable, especially with the trend that it appears to be going in, uh, that, that, that all the, they're going to start clamping down on really what is patentable. I'm not sure it really is going to apply all that much. I think really what's far more important for developers is to make sure, especially for an independent contractor, that they're retaining ownership of, of things, of libraries, utilities, uh, things that they have created over the years and they're going on an engagement and making sure that they're protecting their rights that way. I think that's far more important today. What happens if you write an application with a third-party tool and it's out there and you're making a lot of money with it and then all of a sudden the third-party tool company gets sued for uh, you know, a patent infringement because they're their tool, blah, blah, blah. And it might be because of your application that was the most successful application that their tool that has, has used their tool. Do you, do you see situations like that happen? I'm not aware of a, of a specific case where, you know, like you take, um, trying to think of a, of, of a specific tool that's out there, but you know, as long as your hands are clean and you right. are, you're respecting that license agreement, um, you know, if, you know, there's a contract there, there's a license between you and this software company. I mean, when you, when you plunk the money down and you are, you, you got that license and, you, and you're, you're using it in the correct way. All right. Well, what here, here's a hypothetical. Okay. What happens if somebody's using word, uh, you know, with this VSTO, mm-hmm. visual studio tools for office, they've embedded the functionality that loads the document you know, the docx files in their application, they're selling their application to enterprises all over the place. And now all of a sudden Microsoft has to, because of the patent, disable, you know, that, that feature. Um, and, and not, I don't think that's going to happen, but I mean, it certainly right. could, but you know, because they'll always pay their way out of it or fight it or whatever. Sure. But if that happens, you you know no matter what the license is between the developer and Microsoft for the use of Word, mm-hmm. that software has to change. Well, that's that's a good point, and and in those cases, you know where you know through and a lot depends too on is there a contract? You know what does the contract mm-hmm. with your with your client? I'm amazed. I mean, there's a lot of work that's transacted out there where there's no written contract. You know, you got some specs here and there, and you know, and somewhere along the way, there's enough writing along the way that you could cobble something together. But let's assume for a moment that there is a contract there. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, I mean, what's happening there is, you know, you're, you're, you're leveraging Word in a good faith way. It's, it's put out there. It's put out there. You know, Microsoft is making all the representations and warranties that, that uh, it's certainly what they're passing on is good and that they have a right to do so. Now, could you be sued? Um, I, you know, you can sue anybody for anything, I suppose, but uh, I would say in that case, you'd have a pretty darn good defense uh, from an impossibility of performance under common law and say, look, you know, I, 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 any reasonable person would assume that this feature's in Word, it's going to continue to be in Word, I can't do it now, but it's not through some breach on my part, and... Yeah. You 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 work you you do your best to work it out. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik, without whose support this show surely would not exist. You know, summer is peaking, and our friends at Telerik are working full steam. They've just released the Q2 volume of the Telerik Premium Collection for .NET, which is their biggest release yet. Packed with new things, it'll surely excite anyone who has anything to do with .NET development. 
Let's start with Silverlight and the introduction of the first commercial 3D chart on the market. It is developed as True Vector 3D, which guarantees swift performance and rich capabilities like rotation, animations, etc. Another major announcement is the Telerik Silverlight Scheduler, which is packed with tons of features, even in the first version. Telerik's flagship, Rad Controls for ASP.NET Ajax, grows not only with four new controls, but also with new productivity tools. Take the new Visual Style Builder, an online application that allows you to visually modify skins or design new ones with point and click. And if that's not enough, they've added a completely new product, a free testing framework powered by Art of Test for automating Ajax and Silverlight rich internet applications. Since I'm short on time here, I can't enumerate all the new features and enhancements in the Telerik Reporting, Open Access ORM, and their Windows Forms products, so I'll leave it for you to check them out at Telerik.com. And don't forget to say thank you for supporting .NET Rocks. We just have a uh, we have a new Supreme Court Justice, Justice Sotomayor, and uh, you mentioned in your notes something about her experience with with IP with intellectual property. It's been a while since we've had a you know we've had a uh, Supreme Court Justice um, a little bit uh, you know that uh, came up through that really had a lot of. Um, a lot of high-profile type cases, or had a large amount of cases, and you know, and part of that is that she was a uh, Justice Sotomayor. Unlike a lot of those that go on to the Supreme Court, I mean, she was a practicing litigator. She did a lot of mergers and acquisitions work, and and uh, she really came up through the ranks. And you know, she is um, she has a lot of uh, her her track record has a lot uh, of activity in the intellectual property realm now that didn't come up uh, an awful lot in her you know in her confirmation hearings but she um, you know but she definitely has uh, uh, touched a lot of cases a good a good place for people to look up a lot of this in terms of where where she is there's a great site called the citizen law media project uh, you can Google that and, and and bring that up, and you can see a lot of what she has. Um, uh, she decided. I mean, one high-profile case that she brought up was the um, had to do with the Sein, uh, Seinfeld show, and somebody had um, published a thing, a book, or a trivia questions. So uh, she deemed that to be a derivative work, and and and. The uh, the Seinfeld the, the Seinfeld producers obviously saw that as a hey that's an infringement on our copyright on our shows and and she ruled in that case and if gives you any indication of where she's going that may be it but uh, she has a lot of relevant experience much more so than the other justices so we're just gonna have to wait and see where uh, where that goes now the only place that this would actually have an impact is if there was going to be substantial legal changes to IP law in the U.S. Right. Yeah. Now, what is what uh, is the IP law threatened because of her, or, or do we have a a friend in in Sotomayor? What What's your opinion? I think she has a lot of practical experience, and uh, the a lot of times you can see where intellectual property law is going to go. Sometimes by the administration that's in the um, you know, in the White House, you know, because a lot of this also has touch points in the antitrust. We all remember Microsoft, the antitrust case, and uh, and and that was hot and heavy during the Clinton administration. And then, as soon as the Bush administration came in, all of a sudden we didn't see, you know, nearly as much of that type of activity. Um, I think, I, I I think you know, my impression. Of of uh, of Sotomayor so far is and I haven't done an extensive amount of research, but but from what I've seen, I think she takes appears to take a pretty fair and balanced approach uh, to to rights to intellectual property rights. Uh, but again, it's really hard to predict. You know, once you're on the highest court in the land, exactly where things are going to go, I'm not really sure. But again, what I would definitely suggest is that for the average developer, there's a lot of 
protections that they can take just through private contract and independent contractor agreement. Because the one thing you don't want to do as a, as a software developer is rely on just the default common law rules and have a court or some other type of litigation mechanism like, you know, a, a mediation, arbitration uh, to, de- to decide these things for you. You don't want to be in that, in, in that, uh, in that situation. So what are the common law rules around stuff like libraries and the like? Well, it, it, really, it really goes back to, going back to really the sort of, 20, sort of the 20 questions the IRS has kind of put out there. You know, are you, are you an independent contractor? Uh, because the default rules will change depending on whether or not you're an indep- a, a truly an independent contractor. There's a lot of folks out there that are on a 1099 pay basis, you know, one where, and of course, what I am, I know your, your audience, and I guess I should really qualify this, is that, you know, your audience is an international audience. So what I'm talking about here is specific to the United States, um, and sometimes specific to the state that you're in. And that's another thing before I take on your, uh, answer your question head on is that a lot of folks will talk on threads or online about, well, this is quote unquote the law. And what I've always have told folks like, look, you know, the guy in Utah or the guy in Montana or the guy in South Carolina may be telling you, telling you something but you're in New York. You really need to check to see what the deal is under your state law because issues of contract are first and foremost matters of state law, not federal law. Now, in terms of going to these factors, and you're an independent contractor and you're a 1099, um, if the company provides you with a computer, if they set your hours, if they dictate the level of control, they, they really maintain control over your work. You may be a 1099er, but in reality, you're an employee. You're either what's known as a common law employee or you are a, uh, uh, known as a statutory employee. And so for purposes of ownership of a trademark, of a uh, copyright, you may be ceding rights and you, don't, you, you may not realize it. And that is extremely important. The IRS uh, website has 20 rules. Google away on you know, independent contractor versus employee, 20 rules, those type of terms. Uh, you'll find a lot of the same information out there. And those are things that the independent contractors like us that are out there real software consultants are the things that you're going to want to keep in mind um, to make sure that you're maintaining ownership of, of, your, of your libraries. And also, things that you create, the magic words in a contract are work for hire. If what yeah. you're doing is quote-unquote work for hire, and that's a term of art, you may find it in a, in a contract that you're signing. What you're basically saying is anything you create is a work for hire. Yep. They're paying you to deliver this. They own it. You don't. And if you, in a subsequent engagement, use it, talk about it, write it, because you also may be under confidentiality agreements, uh, you can be sued. Here's the problem, John, is that you know a lot of people, when they, when they don't have a contract assume that, you know, anything that they write, they can take and use again or, you know, if something uh, uses leverage, if if the, the thing goes big and all of a sudden everybody's making money and you're looking around saying, hey, where's my piece? That's right. Um, you know, and they'll just come to you and say the position of the employer is automatically, if there's no contract, it was a work for hire. Isn't that true? Well, it, it, that, that may be their position. But, but what I'm saying is that sets you up now for you versus the company in court, and guess who's probably going to win? That's right, and 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 it really at that point it it's like these David versus Goliath uh, the battles, and it really doesn't matter whether or not you're right. That's one of the first lessons I learned when I 
when I was practicing law full time and had a couple interesting decisions from judges that obviously I would disagree with and uh, go back to some of the, the guys that have been practicing longer and they'd say, oh, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're right. You know, a lot of times you just, you just don't know. And certainly when it comes to uh, litigation, litigation in the civil context costs money. Mm-hmm. Because the real problem is, is that it's easy enough for someone to spend a few hundred bucks to file uh, a complaint, you know, civil action in court, and using my state in Pennsylvania as, as an example, you have 20 days to respond. And if you don't yeah. respond within 20 days, then everything is deemed to be admitted, and you can have a default judgment against you. And then from that point on, it's you're really you've really dug yourself a hole. Yeah. And and so a lot of times. Folks just cave in because they can't, they can't afford the litigation. That's the way it usually ends up That's working the way out. It usually ends up working out. That ended that way for me. Um, I did a, a a very very early website, and I won't say who it was or what it was, but I did a website that was a very popular website, and uh, had my name all over it. And um, the the guy who I started it with left his company, and. Uh, the company basically wanted to commercialize it and they came to me and they said, well, as far as we're concerned, we own this and uh, right. that's where we're starting from and right. we'll negotiate from there. And right. well, I said, well, no, you don't. I mean, it's my name all over it. I have copyright with my name all over on every page. And they said, well, okay, we'll see you in court. So I just, what could I do? I mean, there was no agreement. You know, right. all they have to do is claim it was work for hire because the person that did it with me, uh, you know, we agreed to do it together. But since it was under the under the umbrella of the company that it was being hosted at, you know, it gets it gets to be a very it gets to be a very fact fact intensive, and that's what it is. It becomes a very whether whether you're an independent contractor or an employee is not a question of law. It's a question of fact. And yep. you put the factors out there. Well, you know, you did, you worked on your machine, you worked out of your home office. Most of the time you, you set the direction of your work hours. You, you know, you did this and you did that. All those things would go to your, to your argument that you're an independent contractor, but yeah. uh, it, it is very, it is very, very difficult. And it's almost a moot point most of the time. And the big thing, what I also have told folks, like, look, you know, really be careful. You know, when you bring your bag of tricks, you know, as developers, we all have our, you know, libraries and things that we've done over the years. And, you know, when you bring, when you bring your bag of tricks with you and you start incorporating those libraries, well, what happens if you're an existing piece of work and you're going to do additions to it and your, your libraries are now being incorporated into that bigger body of work. Well, what happens? Well, it depends. And that's usually the big legal answer out there. It just depends on are you do you have a carve out? You know, in other words, maybe all the new stuff that you do is work for hire, but you have a carve out for but the things that I'm bringing to the table, and by the way, here's what I'm bringing to the table. These are separate in a way. I retain ownership. What in effect you're doing this kind of goes to what you're talking about, that I'm going to give that company a license and uh, a license to use it. They can't sell it. They can't do anything else with it. But in effect, what I'm doing is giving them a license to use these things within this specific application. Isn't that, in fact, what you, what you agree to every time you install a piece of software that has a EULA, an end-user license agreement, pretty much, is that you do not own this software. This is a license for you to use it. That's right. If you misuse yeah. it or you misrepresent us in any way, or you screw things. It's like the biggest disclaimer in the world. And every, you, you know, without saying, I agree, you can't install it. Yeah. It's... Has that ever bitten anyone in the butt? Has that, has the end user license agreement ever worked out negatively to an end user's, uh, end? You know, I, uh, I remember, um, you know, I, I've seen a lot of those clauses that, that are in very wide-ranging, everything from, like, non-disparagement mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> clauses. And it's and that, like, So well, if you go on Twitter and say, this software sucks, are you yeah, in violation say, of your you know ULA? And, and the deal is, is that 
I, I don't think any of that's enforceable. Uh, that's my opinion. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 you know, you're, you know, are you ceding first amendment rights? Uh, yeah, I don't right, think, exactly. I don't think so. I mean, what's the consideration? The consideration is you plop down money to use their software. If I, if I don't happen to like their software, um, guess what? I'm going to comment on it, uh, and maybe blog about it and Twitter about it. And if anything, maybe what I'm doing is a public service and, and, uh, you know, you know, I, that's to me is a deeply rooted first amendment, um, uh, protection there. And they certainly put that stuff out there, but how much of that's really enforceable? I don't think really much of any of it is, but you know, there was a, there was a debate a few years ago that I was involved in and it had to do the whole, and Richard, you you may remember hearing about some of this and I won't mention specific names, but there was a, there was a whole issue of running the Foxboro runtime under Wine, which is a Windows emulator on Linux. Right. And Microsoft said, nah, we, we licensed this to run only on, the, on, 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 on a licensed copy of Windows. Now, in that particular instance, I actually I wrote some commentary about this. Uh, I actually defended Microsoft. Uh, I defended their, their viewpoint on it because... Uh, we, we uh, you know, Fox Pro and certainly even .NET, you know, the .NET runtime, I believe the way the EULA reads is you can only run it on Windows. And the deal is, it's like, we let you distribute this stuff royalty free, but we are, we sell, we sell Windows licenses. So the way the register is getting wrong is on selling the OS or licensing the OS. And to make the OS more usable, obviously, you got to have applications. So we're providing this facility. It seemed perfectly reasonable to me that, that, um, that Microsoft was well within its rights as the author of that software or any software to dictate the, you know, where that software is going to be run. Now, I probably, you'll probably get some hate mail over that, uh, but that, that's just, that just happens to be, you know, that just, this guy's opinion, um, I, I've, I've, I can understand other viewpoints, but, uh, but that's kind of where that shook out. And, and that's an example of a, of a clause in an in a, in a, in a end-user license agreement that I thought was reasonable. After all, these are public companies. They're not charities. You know, they, are, they do have a responsibility to stockholders and employees, and, and, and I thought that was totally valid. Well, and a company can't exist without making money somewhere, so it's, it's a matter Absolutely. of... Absolutely. If they chose to give everything else away except for the operating system, then then their license is going to reflect that. Yes. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by the Ants Memory Profiler from Redgate Software. I'd like you to think for a minute about the project you're working on right now. Is your app showing signs of high memory usage? Do you need to regularly restart it because the performance seems to degrade over time? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, then it's worth looking into a memory profiler like Ant's Memory Profiler from Redgate Software. Ant's Memory Profiler analyzes the memory usage of your app and provides detailed data, letting you easily locate memory leaks fast. It only takes a few minutes to run, and it's so much easier to optimize your app when you know exactly where your memory is going. Ant's Memory Profiler runs against both ASP.NET and Windows applications, and at $4.95, you can't afford not to run it. To get your hands on your 14-day free trial, just go to shrinkster.com slash 19E0. That's 19ECHO0. And don't forget to thank them for sponsoring .NET Rocks. So what about uh, situations of piracy? So, you know, you, you, you write an app uh, for a company or you, say you're selling, retailing an app and you know people are pirating it. What recourse is there really? Well... Well, that's the one thing, you know, talking about is it copyrighted, you know, do you have, because really, if they're pirating your software, there could be issues, there could be issues of copyright more often than not. You know, that's one thing everyone needs to understand, right? Is like when you put your name, you know, copyright's a common law, copyright by the, you know, it's in, it's in the, um, I mean, it's, it's, we have this stuff deeply rooted in the constitution and, you know, 
There's common law copyrights. You can register your copyrights, but as soon as you put your name on it, as soon as it's created, now you have a common law copyright. And even with a trademark, you can put TM next to something. That's a common law trademark. It's not a registered trademark. That's the circle with the R. That means you've actually registered your trademark with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Um, by the way, difference between registration and non-registration is just a presumption in, in the court. You know, is you don't have to, you know, I've got this registration. Well, okay, the court will then take judicial notice of that and say, okay, well, we, it's rebuttable, but it's a presumption. If you don't have registration, then you need to go through a present evidence that this is when I created it. And that's why it's always important to document your stuff. Now, to your question on what recourse is out there, well, it's very important. You don't want to sleep on your rights. You need to actively defend. You know, if you don't defend it, if you don't send basically what the, it's a cease and desist letter. And I'm sure you got, you know, you've heard of those. And you, you put that company on notice. That's the first thing you ought to do. You develop an application, and you know that out, out there somebody's using it, and they didn't pay for it. They didn't license the right to use it. You send them a cease and desist letter. And you can do this yourself. Don't need a lawyer to do it. Sounds a little bit more threatening coming from a lawyer, but you can do this yourself. That's the first thing you're doing because you are taking what's known as reasonable measures to protect your intellectual property interests now, are they going to stop? Probably not. But it's important that you send that because what that does is it that becomes evidentiary should there be litigation. But that's the other problem, Richard, is to instigate litigation costs money. But if it's a, but if it's a big enough idea, there may be litigation value in that. And that's the, that, that is the real hard question that people have to ask themselves. But I've also found that on the other side of the aisle, you know, a lot of folks can be reasonable and deals can be worked out. And that's where the vast majority of these things get worked out is they do get um, through, through a private agreement. They do get negotiated. But, yeah, you always have the right to sue. You can sue in state court to file a complaint. Uh, it, may cost you, it may cost you a couple hundred bucks, something like that. But if you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars that are on the line, may very well be worth it. And at that point, they are obligated to respond. What about small claims quarter? Do they have that concept in the U.S.? Nah, well, yeah, absolutely. We have, and again, this all varies by state. Um, right. See, here's the one thing, though. Uh, understand that when w there's really two things that going on here. Anytime you talk about one of these claims, there's, there's actions at law, which usually we're talking about money, there's actions in equity, and this is the, for instance, what occurred here with, with this Microsoft, this recent Microsoft case. That was an that was an action in equity. In other words, an injunction to stop somebody, a, a you know an emergency order to showing you know you're showing irreparable harm, and and a judge decreeing you shall stop right now or within sixty days. You typically yeah. have to go to a. Um, you know, a state, a state court for that type of authority. Um, if all you're seeking is monetary damages, um, you know, yeah, you can go, you could try to go to small claims court, but it really, that's not what they're there for. You know, their small claims court is, you know, these issues of contract and things like that tend to be a little bit more complex than, you know, typical uh, small claims courts, you know, can deal with, you know. Those are more about speeding tickets and, you know, other things like that and, and, and really small claims cases. But, but, yeah, in Pennsylvania, you can do it so long as, you're, so long as your amount of controversy is, um, you know, below $8,000. You can, you can bring it to small claims court. You certainly can do that. But I wouldn't suggest it. Here's another sticky situation, uh, one that I was involved in too, um, but it could happen anytime. Let's say you're a company – that um, gets hired by some other big company to – you're a vendor. So you're, you're building software on spec, right? Right. And you're, you subcontract that out to somebody else. So you've got somebody working on this and then you're selling it. And 
at the same time they're writing it for you, they're writing another version for themselves to sell to compete with you later. <laughs> uh, and, wow, this is <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> yeah, and then um, you know, then the 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 day happens that they do that. They and they claim that they wrote every single line, you know, from scratch. Right. Because right. it was a separate project, and they can maybe document the, you know, the progress maybe with a, you know, version control system or something like that. Sure, sure. Well, uh, there's a couple things. Number one, so so if I get the, if I get the scenario correctly, there there is a there is a company out there that has subcontracted me, and I in turn have subcontracted to somebody else. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So, so first off, got to make sure that number one, that I have the right to subcontract because I may not. Uh, yeah. The right. That's 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 issue number one. Uh, but let's assume that I have the right to to do that. Well, at that point, now I've subcontracted with somebody else. So really, every, everything that they do, there's a couple of things. One is it's a work. Obviously, I'm going to make it so that everything they're doing is a work for hire to me. And obviously, then mm-hmm. everything that I do. For this other company, probably would be a work for hire for them, depending on how we work it out. But the real, the real key there is that this other company that I'm dealing with, they're they're an agent, and I'm the master, you know. And this is the this is old agency law at this point, and um, you know, they have a responsibility, you know, to me that they're obviously going to act in my best interest uh, in furtherance of the deal. That they're not going to be out there. Um, for self gain at at my expense. Now the question is whether or not they actually did that, and that's where you have to bring in. A lot of times you got to bring in an expert, and they got to look at two things of code. And that'd be something that you were interested in doing, though, right? I mean, is that the kind of thing that you that that you wanted to do when you got into IP law? Oh, sure. I mean, basically, because you have the computer skills, you can look at a you know, at an SVN um, log and sure. take a look. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and there's a number, and I, you know, there's a number of folks that uh, you know that I know that have, uh, that have that have done this sort of thing, and you know, as, as an expert witness, and uh, uh, as yeah, when you're when you're a lawyer, typically it, it gets a little bit more difficult. They're they're typically not going to they're not going to want you to do that sort of thing. Certainly one side is going to complain about it. Um, but um, I've never done it personally. Uh, it's pretty interesting. It's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting and it can be very, very lucrative work, but you know, the, the, the scenario that you're describing is very much like the other things you're going to look at the code and you're going to determine, okay, is there, is there a, is there a copyright infringement here? But you also have this other area of law, which is a bit more broader in terms of, okay, maybe it's not technically a copyright issue, but did they take some ideas here? Because uh, they're really going to have the burden of showing that they worked independently. You know, when they've yeah. got your code, right, they're really going to have a tough time with that. But again, it's going to be up to you um, to, to, uh, to advance that case. The burden may be on them. The... The one thing on your scenario, and I actually kind of thought you were going to go, you, this was the direction that you were going to go in with that, is when you subcontract out, you want to make sure that there is an indemnification clause in your agreement. Um, you want to make sure, because, you know, you have your, the company that you're directly contracting with. I'm now relying on you to deliver, you know, maybe you're going to, Handle all of the um, data persistence pieces of it. You're the you're the N-Hibernate, fluent N-Hibernate expert, and I'm bringing you in, and you're going to put all the plumbing in place to to make all that work. And I've got I've got my web UI guy over here, so I'm dealing with you individually. But your components are a critical part of me fulfilling my contract. Well, guess what? If you guys fail to deliver, that puts me in breach of of uh, of my agreement. And I think with Carl, I was you know about 
bringing up the thing about Word. Well, in that case, yeah, you know what? I don't have a direct contract with Word, and all of a sudden someone comes out from the blue and forces Microsoft to take something out. I've got an excuse there. But in this case, I picked you, and I've got a specific contract with you. If you put me in breach with the vendor or the, the, the client that I'm working with, it's going to come out of your pocket, and it's going to come out of your pocket with an, an identification agreement. So what, what we're getting at here is that this case with, with Microsoft Word is that they may end up paying $300 million in damages. I, you know, again, I don't think they will. I think they'll probably figure it out. But, yes, they will. But if, they, but if it went through, they could not only end up paying up that $300 million, but lawsuits from – if they do remove you know, functionality from the software and all of a sudden everybody who uses X is now required to destroy that software or whatever, something crazy like that, can you imagine the number of lawsuits that Microsoft would get? And, and and it all goes to reasonable reliance, and I think it's reasonable to rely on, uh, you know, on, on features of software. Now, they, I guarantee you, there'll be disclaimers, you know, in right. But having the disclaimers and having the, you know, having them being upheld as valid by a court are two different things, you know, to the degree that's going to happen now. And believe me, you know, judges take all that into account because you have this trickle-down effect, and it is all commerce uh, at the end of the day, and that's a good thing. So you're right, Carl. I mean, they're going to settle this. I mean, it's going to get settled, and everyone's going to be happy, and it's, it, it, it will, it will um, you know, it will absolutely uh, get taken care of, I'm sure. Do you um, have much interest in um, uh, open source license agreements? I certainly have looked at them. You know, I haven't really studied them greatly. I mean, it's, uh, to me, it's, you know, where they, they see Creative Commons and some rights reserved. And uh, I, uh, I, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting, you know, in terms of companies. I mean, I, to this day, I still... I question how some of these companies actually make money, you know, giving giving their stuff away and um, you know putting things in public domain. I mean, there's obviously a big difference there, but uh, it is uh, you know, it, it's it's an interesting area. It's not something that I've looked at gra- at, at a great detail. I've not I've not had occasion when I was practicing law. I never had an occasion to draft up a a a, uh, an open source license or anything like that. Uh, but it is, what is interesting is even though it, you know, people think oh, open source, oh, maybe there's not a lot of structure, but there actually is. I mean, the, uh, there really is a lot of structure to that, to that area. And there's a lot of good information out there for people um, to look at. Guys, we're getting down to the wire here. John, are there particular places where we should be looking to get more information about uh, uh, the legal issues around software development? Well, there's you know there's a, there's a number of uh, you know, there, there's a number of, of of blogs. I mean, there's any number of blogs out there uh, in terms of what's going on. The Citizen Media Law Project is one. Uh, I mean, all you have to do is is look at um, you know you know Google or Bing. I guess I should say right Bing. <laughs> uh, the uh, you know, intellectual property, uh, anything from Lawrence Lessig at Stanford University. You know, he has a lot of uh, cutting-edge stuff out there in terms of what's going on. You stay tuned to the news. The one thing I would really like to make sure people remember um, is you're, you get this contract or whatever from, from somebody and you start copying and pasting. I remember once I was looking at a contract. The guy was in Pennsylvania. But the forum selection clause, it was a Michigan contract. I said, do you realize that for you to bring a case under this, you'd have to go to Michigan? Be really careful about that. Look at things, I mean, seriously, look at things like LegalZoom or look at some of the forum documents that are out there. They're, they're very good. Uh, they won't meet your needs 100%. And you know what? Spend the 100 bucks or 200 bucks or so to have certain documents, a good skeleton independent contractor agreement reviewed by an attorney in your state. It'll save you a lot of money. 
protect a lot of your rights in the long run. Not looking here to put money in the pockets of lawyers, but it's money well spent. It really is. Well, all right. John, it's been a, a pleasure. Uh, man, the hour's just flown by. Well, uh, I'm a big fan of your show and uh, hope to be back maybe some other time. Now talking about talk about software development or something. There's a lot of cool stuff out there. I'm having a lot of fun doing this again. Awesome. And thanks for the great information and insight. And we'll see you next time on Dr. Ross. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 